This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to Speaking Out. Mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration. I'd just like to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming. On ABC Radio. I can focus on that hatred or that racism or I can ask myself again, find the words, go back, think again, try to penetrate that space. If I am not communicating, if they will not hear, then I've got to find a way to do that. In conversation with Stan Grant. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. When journalist Stan Grant announced he was resigning from the ABC last month, it was a sad day for many, but particularly his First Nations colleagues. Stan's been a journalist for decades, but he's also been a thought leader, becoming an influential voice in national conversations through his writing, particularly through his books Talking to My Country, Australia Day and With the Falling of the Dusk. As Stan starts a new chapter, it seems timely to reflect on his achievements to date and to explore what has made him the journalist and thinker he is today. Stan was also the host of Speaking Out back in 2007. So Stan, welcome back to Speaking Out. And you're coming to us from Denmark. Gosh, it's scary, isn't it? In 2007, I just watched the years ticking away and wonder how many I've got left to do anything. It's such a, you know, try to squeeze as much in as possible. But um, no, it was it was great to have done that program and now to be talking to you. And yes, from from Denmark, where I'm working with um, the Constructive Institute, which is a Danish institute that began here uh, to try to improve the quality of public discourse and to improve our media, which we know is failing us in so many ways, notwithstanding, you know, the, the great work that is also done, but there are there are deep structural, fundamental, philosophical failings in our media and they work towards that. So I'm here working with them and then I'll be returning to Australia and moving back and forth between Denmark and Australia um, as we set up at the Asia Pacific arm of the um of the Institute. I want to come back to the work that you're now going to undertake. And in some ways, it can seem like it's a, you know, across the world, you're going from Denmark back to Australia. But actually, I also will pick up in a little while, you're actually very well travelled in terms of where you've done your journalism. But I want to start even earlier than that and go back to even before your career. And I guess I was thinking about the fact that your father, Stan Grant Sr., is one of our most respected figures in the First Nations community, a highly respected Wiradjuri elder and a key knowledge holder and language holder. When you look back now, what are some of the key things about your upbringing that shaped you as a thinker? I think it was a sense of, of our community, who we were, our family, our kinship, our culture. You know, I, I, I didn't even really know what it was to be called a, an Aboriginal person we were Wiradjuri. My mother is Kabilaroi. I was raised in that culture among our people. That was my world. And I think it's those things that have sustained me, that sense of where I am from and how that connects me to something so deep. And we can all draw strength from that. You know, and, and it gave me a platform f- to be able to to do the things that I wanted to do, which in many ways is an improbable 
journey. You know, I, I grew up in a in a very poor family, an itinerant family. My my father and mother eked out a living just just trying to find work wherever we could. We were that generation that were first off off the missions with no welcome in many of the towns that we lived in. Um, we moved so often that I barely went to school for the first 13 or 14 years, for the first sort of six or seven years of my life. I changed schools about 13 or 14 times in, in that period. And we were essentially a homeless family for that period. And yet I was sustained by that unbelievable love and sense of community. You know, the little things, how we laugh, how we talk, how we play songs, how we tell stories, how we wrap our arms around each other, the sense of survival. They have been the cornerstones of my life and they come directly from my mum and dad and my extended family. They, they gave me a place to belong, a people to belong to, and I've carried that no matter where I've been in the world. I often wonder too, I mean, especially because you've been such a groundbreaker in terms of doing things that other First Nations people hadn't done. We'll get into a little bit more about your international work as a journalist, but even just going into journalism in the first place, when you became a journalist, you couldn't find another First Nations journalist. You were really uh, at the forefront of that. What gave you the idea that that's the path you would take? What drew you into that as a profession and a career in the first place? I never really had any idea of what I wanted to do or ambition in that sense. Um, no one in my family had finished high school, let alone gone to university. Uh, the idea of a career was just something that was totally foreign to me. I didn't have that worldview. I didn't have that experience in my family. It was accidental in many ways, I suppose. I, I was always fascinated by stories. You know, I come from storytelling people. I read voraciously, even though I wasn't going to school quite often when I was young, and it was a very disrupted education. I read everything I could get my hands on, everything, and I just devoured stories. And I suppose the combination of a love of story, reading, and also the stories of my family and traveling and being in the world was the perfect education in many ways to become a journalist. But it was accidental. I was working as a, um, a male boy straight out of school at the Australian Institute of Aboriginal Studies in Canberra, where I finished my last couple of years of school because dad was working in a sawmill there. And my uncle was the janitor and he got me a job as the mail boy. And it was as simple as that. And by being a mail boy, where I delivered the mail in the morning, did photocopying in the afternoon in that environment, I met Aboriginal people who for the first time I, I met these people who were who were going to universities. I met John Newfong, who was one of the pioneer Aboriginal journalists, who told me what it was like to be an Aboriginal journalist. They showed me that it can be done. Marcia Langton, who intervened in my life and and inspired me to go to university and without whom I, I know I wouldn't be here. And then it was an accident, really. I I, I went to university, I I stumbled into journalism, I applied for a cadetship um, at the Macquarie Radio Network after I'd been working as a copy boy at the Canberra Times, and I managed to get the job. It wasn't something I had even expected. 
And once I got into journalism, the world opened up. You're right. I was the only one there. I was the only Aboriginal person in that newsroom, the only one that I saw around me. It meant that I felt alone. People didn't laugh at the things I laughed at. We didn't share our story, our background, our history. There was racism that we had to confront every single day in so many ways, even that what we we euphemistically call casual racism, but it hurts as deeply as, as, as the most horrendous, vicious, malicious forms of racism. Um, I confronted that every day. I went into the press gallery. I was the only Aboriginal person there. I then went into commercial television. I was the only Aboriginal person there into, for, into being a foreign correspondent. Each door I walked into, I walked into alone, but I knew that I had those people behind me and I knew where I came from and I knew that there are other Aboriginal people out there who were beating that path in so many ways. It was a time of change and I was swept along with that. It must have been really hard. I think for many of us of your generation, where where I count myself amongst it, we were <clears> the first to go into these places. And I, I think, you know, look at how many people are at law school now, but I was always the only one. And I just wonder from your perspective, um, you talked about the fact that there were no others there, but what was it that allowed you to have the strength? Was it the things that your family had equipped you with or were there other ways in which you really needed to, you know, find tools to navigate a space where you were the only person there, you were the first one and you needed to make sure that, you know, you stayed there so others would follow? Mm. You know, funnily enough, Larissa, I think journalism has always tracked me down. It's always gone out and roped me back in, you know, even when I've tried to leave it. And there were times early in my career when I did walk away um, feeling as if I was alone, as if I didn't belong in that environment. You know, you're talking about people who spoke a different language to me. They'd been to, you know, they'd been to universities, their parents had been to universities, they were solidly, you know, middle-class Australians, white Australians, and, and I felt... I felt terribly alone. Uh, I didn't feel at home in those environments. And, and there were times indeed when I did step away, I said, I, I can't do this anymore. And strangely enough, each time something would happen to sort of drag me back in. Um, <laughs> people would call and and, and offer me jobs um, unexpectedly. And that's been a that, that's been a constant throughout my career. Other people have intervened and have brought me back into this business as if it's sort of destined to be there. I, I suppose I did make a, a conscious decision, though, that I, if I was going to survive, I had to play a long game. I could spend my days battling every racist slight, every offhand comment, every joke, and it was constant. Now, if I did that, I would have been destroyed. It would have been debilitating. I would have spent my entire time battling my my colleagues. But I decided I would set my sights on a long game. I would get in earlier. I would stay later. I would read more. I would work harder. I would put my hand up for every assignment. I made a conscious decision as well that I wouldn't be someone's idea of an Aboriginal person or an Aboriginal journalist I wanted to be to beat them on their terms. If they knew about the world, I wanted to know about the world. If they knew about politics, I wanted to know about politics. And I was also blessed with the fact that I come from storytellers and we are naturally 
gifted when it comes to telling stories. And all of those things sustained me. And it, it led to the career that I've had, which has been a happy accident with some great support from from other people, white journalists who who saw potential in me and were, were able to look past their own culture to be able to support me. And then my own hard work. But it was it was never easy. And to this day, I still feel in some ways that sense of not belonging or what they call the imposter syndrome. It seems as if it's a place designed for other people and for people like you and I, Larissa, we all we know, we know, and you and you know this, that we're always having to prove ourselves and no achievement is ever enough. It's so true. And when you say you work twice, three times, four times as hard, I think that is an experience that uh, will resonate with a lot of a lot of us who had that sort of first in family, first in the profession kind of experience. But the other thing about your career that I just want to focus on, because it's also, I think, part of the really important trailblazing that you've done is the work that you did as a senior international correspondent. You, you have covered some of the most important moments globally, the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq. And it was actually, I think, a really important statement for, for First Nations people generally that you as an Aboriginal journalist can operate on a global scale, not even just be pigeonholed within the First Nations unit within a media organisation, but can contribute. And I just wanted to ask you to share with us how you you came to um, get onto the global stage. Mm. It, it, again, it was it was an accident. You know, I'd never been out of Australia until I was uh, in my thirties. I hadn't been on a, a plane until I was sort of you know in my late teens, early twenties, I suppose. But I was working at Channel Seven, and uh, I'd been hosting a program there again, which was which was an accident. Um, uh, with one of the executive producers at Channel 7, saw me working at the ABC, rang me up, liked what I did and said, we're starting a new current affairs program. Would you come and work for us? Uh, I went across there as a reporter and before the show even began, they made me the host of the program. I was 27 years old, which was preposterous. And I look back at that now and I think I wasn't even prepared. But, you know, you you take those things on and, and try to make the most of it. And it was an incredible learning curve in so many ways. It taught me what I didn't want to be as well as as much as what I did want to be. And I was doing that program and I I wasn't entirely happy doing that after a couple of years. And I was actually going to leave and I didn't know where I was going to go. And the news director of Channel 7 stuck his head around the door one day and said, look, we don't want you to leave. How would you like to go overseas? I said, well, where? And he said, how about London? Within within a couple of weeks, my family and I had packed our bags and I'd moved to London as the um, foreign correspondent for Channel 7. While I was in London, I covered a lot of stories across Europe, across Africa and the Middle East. Um, I covered the Northern Ireland troubles a lot, uh, lead up to the Northern Ireland peace deal, um, the death of Princess Diana. I travelled to Hong Kong for the handover of Hong Kong to China and little did I know then the role that China was going to play in my future where I would live for a decade. Um, and it was through my work at Channel 7 that I came to the attention of people at CNN, other reporters who'd see me out in the field and we'd talk and they saw some of my work. And I came back to Australia from uh, from my London posting. And again, the, the sort of happy accident of my career, I was walking back 
from the beach one day and a phone rang and it was the vice president of CNN inviting me to go to Hong Kong for a meeting to talk to me about a job. Um, it was it was really that that random. I went to Hong Kong. I met them. Uh, they did a screen test to see if I was up to scratch for what they wanted, um, which evidently I passed. And they offered me a job and it opened up the next 12, 13 years of my life as a senior correspondent for the, one of the biggest news networks in the world. It, cores, it, it coincided with the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. So I covered those conflicts. I spent a lot of time in Pakistan. Uh, I was based in Hong Kong. Then we moved to Beijing. Then I moved to the Middle East and I was based out of the Middle East. I worked out of Jerusalem. I worked out of Abu Dhabi and Dubai. I moved back to Beijing again uh, for a second stint before returning home. And I, I look at those years and I see that as sort of, I suppose, that the pinnacle in some ways. Um, I never felt more respected. I never felt more energized. I never felt more engaged. Um, it was it was working at a, you know, I, I say to people, it's sort of like being in the Olympics of journalism in a sense. You're working alongside the best with the best and it's a very competitive environment. But I found again, Larissa, that it was the things that that had nurtured me as a, as a young boy that really uh, underpinned whatever success I had at CNN. The stories I did, the places I went, I was looking at my own country, at my own story, the people who'd been invaded, the people who'd been colonised, the people who'd survived war, the trauma of war. I saw so much of our struggle in those stories. I gravitated to the stories of human survival when all certainty has been removed. And that's our story. So I suppose I, I brought those eyes to that work and it gave me a, a point of difference. And it, it 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 underpinned, I think, the success that I had there. The other thing, and I think you you would certainly know this, it would resonate with you and others who are listening have had this experience, but as an Aboriginal person, when you go overseas, you you feel that weight lift. We don't meet other people with that heavy weight of our particular history sitting between us, even meeting other Australians in a way that I'd never met them before. As people who come from the same land as me, as people who share the same memories as me, as people who share the same popular cultural touchstones as me, I could meet my fellow Australians in a way that I didn't necessarily in Australia, where we still live with that space between us. And, and of course, it also meant that I could look back at my own country from afar through the experiences of others who had suffered what we had suffered as First Nations people in Australia. And, and professionally, um, it meant that people saw me and my achievements for who I was and did not necessarily see this as being, oh, he's the Aboriginal journalist, or aren't we doing him a favour, or he should be grateful, aren't we good for giving him a job? No, I was in that environment at CNN where I was working with the best, and I had to be the best among the best, and that was what was asked of me, and that was liberating. It is so true, that experience of being overseas. And I remember for the first time, I, I described it as feeling invisible, but that sounds kind of negative. But it was that you, you articulate it so much better, that it is actually that weight being lifted. And I'm interested to like to talk to you a bit about the 
public intellectual role you've come to play a little bit later on. But I just wondered from that that experience yourself, having had that weight lifted, you talked a bit about how it made, allowed you to look at stories differently, but how did it change the way you felt about yourself and your place within Australia? It gave me a language, it gave me a context, a broader context to understand these things. You know, it's bewildering when you're a an Aboriginal person in Australia, growing up inside that country where as much as we try, we struggle to find the words to cut through. Even intimate friends of mine who don't come from uh, from our culture, I know they struggle to grasp what we, our people have have suffered and endured. Even with the best will in the world, there is a space between us and words are often not enough to penetrate that space. You know, we are constantly called upon to open our veins so that people may see us bleed, so that they may see that we are human. You know, this is this is an, a terrible burden to place on us. When you come from a people who have fought for their very survival, when our existence on the planet was not assured, and here we are still hanging on. It's very difficult to translate that. And I suppose in many ways, I've been a translator, translating my people to Australians and the rest of the world and translating that world and, and Australia back to my people. It's a place of exile that many writers in particular find themselves in. It's going into that place of exile that gives you a vantage point and a context for deepening that level of understanding and trying to find the words to be able to to penetrate that space, to break open that silence. I've I've admired that in the great writers that I've been drawn to who have who have sought to find that language to fill that empty space. And being overseas, I I found I think a, a way of trying to understand what happened to us. What happened to us in Australia, what happened to our people, is part of a big story. The story of modernity, the story of the explosion of the age of reason from the 17th century, the age of discovery, the creation of the modern world, which is a remarkable achievement and yet comes at such an enormous cost. The progress the economic progress, the fact that we live in a world that we are more connected to each other than at any other time in history. I'm here as an Aboriginal person speaking to you from Denmark and you're in Sydney and we live in this remarkable organism and yet we know that there are people who have paid such a great price for that. There is a deep alienation. There are the scars and wounds of history. There is the trauma that we carry. And I sought philosophically to understand that. But I looked into the eyes of a Chinese farmer, when I looked into the eyes of a refugee in Afghanistan or Iraq, when I, when I sat down with people who had felt the full force of history land on them, I was learning about myself. And I went deeper into the philosophical underpinnings of this thing that we call modernity, this reaching for each other and this and, and the, the, the the idea of the supremacy of rationality and reason. And yet what we lose in that as well, 
the sense of the soul, of the human soul. And I, I, I've sought to gain a language to be able to speak back to that, not just in Australia, but more broadly as well, to try to understand myself in the world. And I could never have done that if I didn't have the experiences that I had outside of Australia. That's why I think it's so important to just take this time with you to have reflected on that enormous career that you had um, internationally. I think people sort of forget about it because you've been such a contributor recent in recent times to the important national debates, but actually it is steeped in this enormous global experience. Um, and, you, you know, we just touched on some of the, the um, geopolitical events that you've been covering right at the centre. But I do have to ask you, within that extraordinary um, career, you must have interviewed some amazing world leaders and real change makers. Who stood out for you? Who did you really enjoy meeting or find really inspiring? You know, you're right. It sort of blurs after a while because there are so many, you know, all of the Australian prime ministers of of the past 30, 40 years, um, but also globally, you know, um, whether it be Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, you know, the, the big figures in American politics, um, whether it be people like Yasser Arafat, um, Nelson Mandela, um, Jerry Adams from Sinn Féin, um, you know, uh, uh, Prince Charles, who I've uh, now, now King Charles, um, you know, so many different people that I've, I've met and interviewed people that I grew up admiring. I, I remember interviewing Johnny Cash. Um, you know, as we know, music's very important to our people and particularly those sort of old country singers that I grew up with and meeting him and playing guitar with him actually was a was just such a thrill for someone, you know, as a little boy who heard those songs and knew what those songs of hardship meant to our people. They've also they've all been really important. But but I'll tell you something. The most important stories, the most important people that I've met and interviewed in my career have been ordinary people, people who are caught in the middle of extraordinary events, wars, famine, revolution, natural disaster, and yet find that human spirit, the ability to live with dignity in a world of catastrophe. That's what I saw in my mum and dad. That's what I saw in my grandparents. I see that in the faces of our people. I saw it in people all over the world. And there was one particular story that I think encapsulates this. And it was in Pakistan after the earthquake where over 200,000 people were killed and in vast swathes of the country were, were destroyed and villages buried under rubble. And I saw one evening as we were driving back after filming for the day, a little light in a tent in the middle of a field. And as a journalist, you sort of get instincts about these things. And I, I said to my cameraman, let's pull over and, and go across and see what's, what that's all about. And we got there and there was a mother who was cooking over an open stove. There was a little tent. Inside was the father and their two sons one of their sons had a broken leg and broken ribs, internal bleeding. Um, they'd lost their eldest son, crushed under the rubble. They couldn't even retrieve his body. The father walked for 40 kilometres with the family, carrying his son down the side of a mountain to come to a relief station where they could get tent and some meagre rations. It was extraordinary to see the love 
and the courage in those people. When the mother had finished cooking this this very modest meal, humble meal, she offered it to us first. What an incredible generosity. And then the next morning, we went into town and all the men would gather at the town square where the relief agencies would come and they'd select men to work for the day and they'd pay them for that work. Now, these are people who have nothing left in the world. And here at the break of dawn was that man who had lost his son, his home, carried his injured son down the side of a mountain. All he had was a tent and some food rations. And here he was with the love and the courage and the dignity to face catastrophe for his family. That blew me away. And no person of fame or power will ever equal the humble human dignity of that family. That's Stan Grant. He's reported from more than 60 countries covering the major events of the last two decades, including war in Iraq and Afghanistan, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the end of apartheid in South Africa. But it was the coronation of King Charles that turned out to be most dangerous for Stan. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia, on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Coming up, we've got more insightful words from my chat with Stan Grant, but first here's some music from Thelma Plum. So 
That's Thelma Plum with her song When It Rains It Pours. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. Stan Grant has published a few books that have won him awards and attention. His latest book came out the same month he stepped back from hosting Q&A. The Queen is Dead addresses the complex legacy of colonisation and makes some calls to action. You have had an extraordinary career as a journalist, which we've just been covering. You could have just stayed in that space, but instead you moved into engaging in very important, broader public debates, particularly debates that challenge the country about who we are, what we should stand for, what we believe in. And I think trying to, when I read your work, you're always challenging Australia to be its best self. What made you feel the need or the desire, the impetus (laughs) to move from the space of the journalist who is, you know, an observer and brings us stories to somebody who is actually deeply engaging in these broader intellectual debates? Larissa, I, I had no choice. I was raised for this. It was what was expected of me. Our people have struggled to survive in our country. It's not enough that I pursue a career of personal glory or achievement. All the things I did, I did for my parents and my people, all of it. And it was preparing me for the day when I felt that I was capable and had something to offer to our country, our world, to speak to these things. It was a long apprenticeship to be able to find the wisdom and the words to even approach that task, but I owed it to my people. This is what my parents and my family expected of me. It is why I am here. I don't have the option like other journalists. You know, I look around and sometimes I I may be envious of the careers of other people where they never have to confront the things that we have to confront. They can be the detached observer. But our people have faced being wiped off the face of the earth. When you have that in your bones, you can't walk away. And all of that prepared me to enter that space. I was always going to have to find the words to do that. First, I wanted to say to other journalists, I can do what you can do and I can do it better. I will achieve whatever I can achieve. I will work in the world and I will bring that back to my country and I will speak. And I'm not saying that I'm always successful at that. I know far too well my own failings and when I fall short. I'm working this out as I go along, just as we all are. But everything that I've written, everything that I've said, I would like to think comes from the place that my people have prepared for me with humility, grace, kindness, love, and hope and generosity. That's what they raised me for in the face of catastrophe, to find dignity and to speak with generosity and love and kindness and hope and never lose sight of what, of what is just, what is right, to never lose sight of that, to never bow down and compromise to evil in our world because evil exists in our world. So there was no way I was never going to do that. And when I came back to Australia, it, it almost called me 
to do that. When I returned to Australia, it was right in the midst of the Adam Goods booing, which we know was horrendous, not for Adam, obviously, but for us as well, because we know the sound of that boo. And I, I wrote about that, ended up making a film about that. I, I was invited to give different speeches and I, I spoke from what I knew to be the truth of my people. And I've written about that and I've wrestled with that. I've wanted to challenge not just Australia, but our own people too, Larissa, to say we cannot be chained to the darkness of our history. We must circle that trauma. We we. We cannot even begin to make sense or bring meaning to that trauma because it is beyond meaning. And yet we have to live with it and we have to find a way to survive through it. And And I'm wrestling with that every day in everything I do. And that's the mirror I wanted to hold up to myself, my country and our own people. In your writing, um, and I mentioned in my introduction a couple of the very significant books you've done, Talking to My Country, Australia Day, when with the falling of the dusk, and of course, now with The Queen is Dead, you do take on these challenging issues about who we are as a nation. You speak very deeply and reflectively about First Nations experience. And I think many of us, when they read your writing, we can see ourselves in it and we can see our own points of view. Even in this conversation, you've articulated things um, that I haven't been able to articulate as well. So there is a way in which you really do represent First Nations experience. With that in mind, and, and the fact that a lot of these books, I think, particularly the um, Talking to My Country was very well received by non-Indigenous Australians. But with all of these books, there's always been a certain resistance and to them, a backlash, particularly when you talk about the fact that, that Australia still has to grow in terms of its racism. Does it still surprise you that you can write so honestly from such deep experience and that's the reaction? It's, it's disheartening and it uh, it's, can be soul-destroying and it takes an enormous toll, particularly when people take those words and twist them uh, and weaponize those words back at you and attack me, my family, it, it it wounds you. And I've been deeply wounded by that. And yet that is what a writer, a, a poet is called to do, I suppose, you know, without wanting to become uh, too immodest. But the, 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 the preacher, I suppose, the prophet that we are called when we see things to speak back and I've seen things, and I've experienced things, and I've I try to elevate those things and to put those things into a into a deeper context. It's not just about Australia; it's about the world that we live in. Something created this remarkable thing called modernity, and yet we live with the consequences of that. For all of the enormous breakthroughs in our world. We live with the potential for catastrophe. We live in the nuclear age. We live in a a climate crisis. We live in a world of a battle between democracy and autocracy. Um, Democracy itself fails us in so many ways. We live 
with the realities of racism and sexism and homophobia and the, 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 the things that divide us. As Albert Einstein said, the great tragedy of humankind is the illusion of separation. And we continually abstract ourselves from the universe and separate ourselves. And it's those, those lines of separation, those fault lines that I've walked throughout my career and sought to write back to. But like I said before, Larissa, there is still that space between us. And I reach for the words to speak into that space. And I know that those words are going to land differently and some people are not going to hear them. I can focus on that hatred or that racism, or I can ask myself again, find the words, go back, think again, try to penetrate that space. If I am not communicating, if they will not hear, then I've got to find a way to do that. Um, I was just in Rome last weekend and I always go to the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican and I stand under that extraordinary work from Michelangelo on the ceiling and I look at the outstretched hands of Adam and God and they never touch. And that space that Michelangelo depicted is the space between us and I speak into that space and it's hurtful and it takes a huge toll and yet I must try to find those words with the love and kindness and generosity and hope that my people have instilled in me um, to not give in to the darkness, however hard it is. But it, it is very hard. And this year especially, part of the reason I've walked away from doing what I was doing at the ABC is that I think I need to go and ask myself, can I find other words? Can I find another way? Because I'll never stop speaking into that space and I have to find a way to try to reach the people who don't want to hear. That, that's a very generous worldview. When you look back over your career, what, what is it that you're most proud of, considering there's been so many achievements, awards, but often it's something quite personal. What's the thing that you're most proud of? Uh, that I'd like to think that all the effort and the struggle of my parents, that when they look at me, they feel as if I've honoured that um, and that I might have honoured my family and my people. That is the absolutely most important thing for me. Regardless of the awards and the books I've written and the films I've done and the, the, you know, the personal achievements, which are all important because they mark our own journey and it's important to be recognised for the work that we put in, particularly when it comes from your peers but more than anything, I just want my parents to know that all of that work and love that they put into raising us, that I honoured it. And that's the most important thing. And I think also when I look around at the media today, and I know that I walked into those rooms alone and I don't stand in those rooms alone today. And you know, I'm not saying I'm responsible for the achievements of the people who've come after because they've walked their own roads and they have busted down their own doors and they have worked incredibly hard. But I know that I shone a light into those rooms. And one of the things that I have dedicated myself to at the ABC is to ensure, and sometimes at my great cost, and, and certainly at the endless 
uh, you know, pressure that I've put on management at the ABC, I have fought every day to make sure that those white spaces do not remain exclusively white. And when I talk to you, when I see Tony Armstrong on, on the breakfast television, when I look across at Channel 9 and I see Brooke Boney, when I, you know, when I look right around out, out when I see Isabella Higgins in London, when I think of Bridget Brennan who went to London, foreign correspondents who followed in the path that I was able to beat, I think, well, I followed in the path that people had opened up before me and now they're able to follow on that journey. And I know that the media landscape today is different because I walked into those doors and, and, and walked into those rooms and that presence created change. I know that and that gives me a great sense of achievement. It's changed and I'd like to think I was part of that change. Well, actually, I was going to ask you a little bit about the fact that you have been a very active mentor. I mean, we talked about your career and, you know, behind that, you have really made a made a real effort to create those spaces. And you mentioned some of those on in relation to the ABC. And we mentioned earlier, you'd started, you had this time on speaking out and there's a list of people who've followed in your footsteps there. But I was also thinking of other spaces you've been, you know, you started The Point on NITV and there's been a whole generation of journalists that have gone through. So it, it actually has been a very active effort in mentoring new generations of um, journalists, some of us not so young, but still new to the to the game, um, coming through. And, and surely that must give a sense of achievement. And you did say you can see that the landscape has changed, but you're obviously now taking, have taken a position, you've, you've mentioned taking time out to do some thinking and think about, you know, what needs to change and how you can be a part of that. What are your thoughts on that? I think that journalism is has become part of the problem. Maybe it always was. You know, I look around at our world today and, you know, we are we are on tilt. You know, we we are not just talking about, but we are actively preparing for the potential of global conflict. We talk again about world war. We look at the war in, in Ukraine. That's not the only one, of course. There are conflicts all around our world. We look at the Trump years in America. We look at the fact that Freedom House now measures 16 straight years of declining democracy around the world. Where I am in Europe, this extraordinary experiment, can people live together in such proximity with such difference? How do you survive in a continent that has torn itself apart from the 30 years war, the wars of religion, to World War I, World War II, we know what happens when Europe falls apart. You know, I look at France, I look at Germany, I look at Hungary with barbed wire on the borders. I look at the struggle of people of different faiths and different languages and colours and cultures to live together in this space, this incredibly crowded, contested space. We look at the climate emergency in our world. We look at the gross inequality that is driving so much of the political polarisation all of these things contribute to make this such a volatile mix. And the media plays a significant role in this. I look at the voice debate in Australia and, and the failure of the media. The fact that 
it has been poisoned by the worst, by racism. I mean, two weeks ago, there was a a newspaper article debating the colour of my skin, for heaven's sake. In 2023, when we should be talking about big things, when we should be grappling with this big question of Australia, that the media fails us. It fails us because everything is framed as conflict. The language that we use is divisive and aggressive. Someone doesn't debate or criticise someone, they attack someone. Everything is about heightened language. Everything is about pitting people against each other. You look at um, the impact of social media and the toxicity that that has brought, the, the, the legitimization of the voices of hate through those platforms. And I have to recognize that as someone who has been in the media, that I am complicit, I am implicated. And one of the things that I'm determined to do now Uh, at this stage of my career and what is left of my working life is to speak into that space. There are like-minded people, people here at the Constructive Institute in Denmark. Uh, I'm travelling to Bonn in Germany later this week where the Bonn Institute is also working in that way. I'll be travelling to Yale uh, University in, in the US to deliver a lecture at the Yale School of Culture and Divinity who are asking these questions. I'm going to go to China at the end of October to speak at the Beijing Language Foreign Language University again about how we speak to each other in this incredibly contested world. That is important work. It's important work for our world. It's important work for our people. It's important work for journalism. If I have anything to offer, it is trying to speak into that space, to connect us, to see that there is more that connects us than divides us, and to know that the stakes are so incredibly high. The media is failing us. Yes, there is some great work done in the media, but overall, the culture of the media is failing us. And I want us to try to do my bit to repay the industry that has been so good to me and to try to speak into that space between us in a way that brings us closer, not drives us further apart. Stan Grant, thank you so much for your work, your wisdom, your tenacity and your generosity and for creating these spaces that the rest of us can go into and tell our stories. And I hope you'll come back to speaking out as you do this next important phase of your work and keep us up to date with your thoughts and reflections. It's always such a privilege. Larissa, it's always great to talk to you and and back at you as well, because you have blazed a trail. You have put your head up. You've taken the knocks. You've had to deal with the impact of this. Your family's had to deal with it. We're there for each other and you have been there for me. And I want to thank you for your words of kindness, your unstinting generosity, love and support. We need each other and you are always there for me. So thank you. Oh, Stan, thank you. That's Stan Grant, one of Australia's most successful journalists. He recently walked away from his media career to help fix what he calls a toxic global news culture. Stan's now Professor of Journalism at Monash University and the inaugural director of the Constructive Institute Asia-Pacific.
That's the show for now. Join us again next time as we bring you an in-depth recap on the referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and Sarah Allerley. You can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.